Well, there's really only one main goal of why we do this Sunday after Sunday. And that is so we will have an authentic, fresh encounter with the risen Christ. That's it. Through singing, we want to encounter Jesus. Through encouraging one another, being together, we want to encounter Jesus. Through the preached word, we want to encounter Christ. We, we want that. That's why we're here. That's why we do this thing every Sunday morning. And, and a piece of that is us hearing God's word and then responding to it. It's us hearing and responding. And I know we, we do that during the week. I know our, our groups of three in our community groups, the goal there is to review and apply God's word. That's what every group should be doing every week. You go to God's word, you read the text from the previous week, and then you apply it to your lives. It should make a difference. And there's times that we do that together here. After I preach, we'll take three or four minutes and just like a chance just to respond and apply God's word. And that's a conviction that we have, the danger of hearing without application, right? James warns us of that. Don't be deceived. Hear it and respond. Hear it and apply. And that's what he wants us to do. And so one of the things that I believe the Spirit put on my heart during the sabbatical was to make sure that we have times where we can respond and apply without feeling rushed. I don't know if you guys, you feel rushed sometimes. I feel rushed. And I know I can leave here literally and forget things that I prepared to preach and preached by Monday morning. And so I feel like there's fresh opportunity when we're together, just having heard God's word, to really get a chance just to process it together. And so this morning we're going to do that. I'm actually going to preach a little shorter. <clears throat> yeah, right. I'm going to preach a little shorter so that we have more time to interact with God, to seek God. Um, and so I actually woke up two nights ago, and I, I felt like God very clearly just said, I, I want my people to seek me to work inside of them and to work outside of them. And so that's what the half she is. Um, just that phrase was in my head, inside, outside. Um, and that God wants us to do that together. So this morning, the passage from uh, Genesis is very relevant to, I mean, there's so much application in it. Um, but I thought, let's broaden it. Because we all have needs that God wants to meet. And so just so you know where we're going this morning, uh, I'm going to preach and then we're going to take, hopefully, well, the rest of the time, whatever that is, Alex is going to play a little, and while he's just playing, I want us to take time just to seek God. So I don't know what that means for you. There's, you can kneel up here at chairs. There's room in the back if you just want to get on your face before God. Um, then Alex might transition, lead us in a song, and then there'll be just music again for five minutes or so for you to pray more. Um, just a chance for you just to get refreshed in Jesus. Do you need that? I mean, I need that. I get it at home. I get it on my own. But there's something about when we get together with God's people that I think he, he does different things. And so we're going to do that this morning. Um, preach a little less. Give us a chance to really reflect on what God uh, wants to say to us. And then for you just to look at this little list I put together and, and ask God, what, is there something on this list? This is just a, things that popped into my head. So you may look at this and say, none of those are me. <laughs> I need God to do this inside of me. And that ain't, that ain't one of them. Or, I want God to do this outside of me in my world, then it's not on the list. That's, the point isn't pray through this list. You understand? It's not the point. 
The point is just to get your brain going. Like, oh, yeah, these are a lot of things. There's lots of things that I might want God to do inside of me. And let the Spirit tell you what it is, whether it's on the list or not. Does that make sense? I guess it's funny. It, uh, not funny. I mean, test is even word. Like, just, I want us to be free. I want us to be free. Let the Spirit do what he wants to do in our hearts this morning. So, Ruth, come read. Ruth's going to read chapter 42. She's going to begin at the end of 41 to set the stage for 42. Is that on? All right, so, yes, chapter 41, uh, verse 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Rupert answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? 
When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and shall trade. you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we saw God do really two amazing things in Joseph's heart. If you would look back with me, Ruth did not read this. I'm going to back up further than where she started. Look at verse 51. God has made me forget all my hardship. And then in verse 52, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So last we talked about this, right? God made him forget All of the hardship. God made him forget what had happened with Potiphar's wife, made him forget about what happened with his brothers, putting him in the pit, made him forget about all the years in jail. But I bet, I bet that when his brothers walked through the door and fell on the ground and he recognized them, oh, I bet he remembered a lot. I think there was a lot of remembering going on in that moment when he saw them that way. And I think the things that he thought and said were in the lines of, all right, it's game on. You just, you just destroyed how many years of my life. I think he thought it's revenge time. I think it was a moment of PTSD on steroids when he saw them face to face. In fact, we're told that in verse 7, that he recognized them, that he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. So I think he's ready to get revenge. 22 years, I bet. About much time has passed as his brothers chucked him in the pit. It's a long time to fight bitterness. And even though God had caused him to forget, I think in that moment he's thinking it's time to get revenge. I mean, after all, these guys are more like a gang than they are a family, are they not? I mean, don't picture them dancing around, doing cartwheels, singing on a stage, because that ain't what they're like. (laughs) These guys are bad. Reuben had sex with his father's concubine. Simeon Levi slaughter every man in the city right after they get circumcised. Judah has sex with his daughter-in-law, and then she ends up pregnant. He He thinks she's a prostitute. And then when he finds out, he says, well, burn her alive. I mean, these aren't nice guys. They're ready to kill Joseph if it wasn't for Reuben standing up and going, hey, let's throw him in a pit. And the brothers think, that's good. He'll die a slower death of starvation and dehydration. 
I mean, that's what these guys are like. So keep that in mind as you read this story and as you read how they interact with one another because I think this really is an opportunity for Joseph to get full revenge. This is it. And the stage is set. And I don't really know completely what to do with Joseph and how this story plays out for the next four chapters. But I don't think really that's the point. Do we applaud Joseph for what he does to his brothers or not? I think the point of the story is to see how God is at work in man's heart. I think that's the key to this. God is at work in the heart of man, in the heart of the brothers, and in the heart of Joseph. So I think God gives grace gifts through this whole story. Things he does in man's heart that are gifts of grace. And I want to walk us through those together. The first ones we see in Joseph's life. I think God gives Joseph the gift of remembering. So track, track what happens here. It, it, we see in verse 7 that he's ticked off. I think he's thinking it's time for revenge. So he speaks to them roughly. And then in verse 8 it says, the second time that he recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. It's the second time he repeats it. And then in verse 9, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. I think God, having Joseph remember those dreams, was a game changer for how Joseph treated his brothers. I think he was ready to do them all kinds of harm. But he remembered his dreams. And why is this significant? Every other time in the past story, when Joseph remembers dreams or interpretation of dreams, who does he give the credit to? God. So he knows his brothers are bowing down and that that's fulfilling a dream that God had given him. So he looks at the situation now and goes, oh, God must be in this. God must be working. So I think that's what softened his heart in that moment. It was him remembering the dreams and how God had continued to work through the dreams that was changing Joseph's attitude. That seems to be what's going on in the story. And I think the point is God is changing hearts. And I think God really is at work in Joseph's heart in helping him to not be man-centered, but to be God-centered. To not let all the mess that these guys have brought into his life be the center of his experience. And I think if you want to change your heart when you live in the land of affliction, in the land of suffering, don't let anyone steal the center stage from God. Know that God's still at the center. Even when other people maybe are doing stuff that's really messed up, believe that God is at the center. And that's what gives Joseph, I think, the faith, the love to not literally have his brothers picked off one at a time, which I'm sure he wanted to do. But you remember, no, God, God's in control of all this. God is at work. So God gives Joseph the gift of remembering and then God gives Joseph, I think, the gift of fearing God. He gives him the gift of fearing God. Now look at verse 18. This is the interaction now he has with his brothers. It says, In the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. For I fear God. It's little phrases like that in a story I think that we can just pass over and, and not get out of them what I think we're supposed to get out of them. And what Joseph is saying to them is, look, I will keep my word because I fear God. 
And then he looks at them and says, and if you're honest, you'll do what you say too. In other words, if you fear God, then you will be honest like I'm going to be honest. I don't know if you caught it when Ruth read it how many times we saw the word honest. They're honest men. Are you honest? Are they going to be honest? I mean, it's over and over again. And I think Joseph right here is just connecting that point. If you fear God, you'll be honest. If you fear God, you will keep your word. And so that's where Joseph's going. I think Joseph's fearing God is a wonderful gift from God. Now, when you think fear God, don't, don't think fear, fearing a bully kind of thing. You got to think reverent awe. Think overwhelmingly captivated by the power and magnificence of God. I mean, Joseph is recognizing when he says, I fear God, that God and him are very different. They're very, very different. He is surrendering to God as the one who is far above him and transcendent. He's literally coming under the kingship and the authority of God and saying, I fear you, God, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I am your servant, and you are my God. I mean, these are similar words like Joshua used when we studied Joshua. Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army, and he says, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? Or Samuel, speak, Lord, I'm your servant, I'm listening. Or Mary, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to your word. I mean, this is what it means to fear God. Say, God, whatever happens, whatever you want from me, however this plays out in my life, you are the king. You're the master. You're my Lord. I I fear you. I come under your authority. I mean, this this isn't the first time this has happened for Joseph, right? I mean, when Mrs. Potiphar comes after him, his response to her is, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God, right? He, He fears God in that moment and chooses the hard road, gives up what he could have had because he fears God. God is on the center of his life, on the center of his soul. And so he fears him. Do you fear God this way? Do you see the role that he wants to play as your master and your king? Do you often bend your knee before God? I mean, do you often get down and and literally get low? This is what worship is, right? Not singing. Worship is bowing low before God. Say, God, you are, you're my master. You're my king. I want to live under your lordship. I want to live under your kingship. You are good and you reign. And I humble myself under you because you are the one that will love me and care for me the way you should help me. Do you pray that way? Don't know what's going on, but you, you surrender everything to God, saying, whatever your plan is, I'll take it. I'll embrace it. I want to live for you more than anything else. That, that's fearing God. That's what Joseph does. He knows what his place is in the relationship, and he knows what God's place is in the relationship. And evidently, this fearing God as his good and sovereign and loving king 
is what drove him to have the confidence to say, because I fear God, I will keep my word. I know that my fear of God will cause me to keep my word to my brothers. And this is how God seems to be at work. But now we shift, and we're going to see God at work in the brothers. We're going to see God's work in the brothers, because here's what God does for the brothers. God is going to give them gifts also, grace gifts also. So I want you to look at the conversation and how it begins in chapter 8, in verse 18. He says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine to your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And then this conversation breaks out in verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty. In truth, we are guilty. These guys finally are confessing guilt. They realize their guilt. I would love to have known, like, how many days did they spend out taking care of their sheep, just crushed by the guilt of what they had done to their brother? Did they ever have conversations with one another about the guilt that they felt for what they did to their brothers? Listen, guilt, guilt is the thoughts and emotions that come when we know that we have done something wrong. It is God's grace, I think, that they feel this guilt. And here's why. Guilt is meant to bring conviction, that is meant to bring to repentance, which leads to Freedom. That's why it's a gift. See, guilt is bad. Humans weren't created to carry guilt. But then God takes guilt and flips it around. He says, all right, you've, you've got the guilt. Here's what I want you to do with the guilt. Cultivate conviction for what you've done so that you can repent, so you can be free. It's the freedom that he wants us to experience. James tells us, He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So you're guilty. I'm guilty. Guilty people feel guilt. (laughs) And so I think it's normal that we would feel this way, but it's meant to lead to something. And so it's a gift that they feel this way. In 2 Corinthians, God says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation Without regret, it it leads to something. It produces something in us. Now, I I don't know everyone's story in here, and I don't know whether some of you really struggle with guilt. Maybe you just always feel guilty. There's always a sense of always feeling like you've always done wrong. Maybe you feel guilty for something you did in the last week, or maybe like these guys, it's something you did 20 years ago that they're still feeling guilt over. Listen, the the guilt is real, and we all live with it. But stick with me, because what happens next, the things the brothers say next, point to your ticket to get out of guilt. That's what they do. They don't even know it, but they are literally going to piece the gospel together in the things they say next. So here we go. The next thing that happens here is Reuben connects guilt 
to sin. He connects guilt to sin. I don't know if you circle words in your Bible. I would circle in your journal the word guilty. And then look what Reuben says in verse 22. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? You got to love it. What's he doing? He's separating himself from his brothers as far as he can, right? You guys may feel guilty, but I told you not to do it, right? He's trying to put some distance between him and his brothers, but what he says is spot on. He told them not to sin against the boy. I think God gives them the gift of the confession of sin. They connect the dot. Why am I guilty? Because we sinned. Now, I know that's not a popular word these days, sin. I know that it's been abused, the doctrine of sin, for some of us in our previous church experiences. But nevertheless, it's real. Sin is real. And sin is really anything that you or I do or say or believe or think that doesn't reflect God accurately. You're an image bearer of God. So it's the things you think, you say, you do, you believe that aren't in keeping with God. That, that's what makes it sin. And so we sin and sin often. Romans tells us this. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, you were meant to magnify, glorify God, and we all fall short. We don't do it like we're supposed to. Sin, I think, is really failing to show off God's character by how we live. We're supposed to show off God's character, what God is like by how we live our lives. And when we don't, that's what sin is. I know that I personally... I'm just not aware of the frequency or the magnitude of my sin. I'm not. I'm just not aware. I'm not aware of how often I think or believe or say or do things that don't reflect the character of God. And I'm not aware of how great the distance is between the things I do and think and say and believe and the character of God. I just don't think I see it clearly. I think I get glimpses of it every now and then, but I don't think I see it. And so I think it is right, I think, for us to feel guilty when we sin against God. I think it is a gift. It is his grace. And it's because he wants us to live free the way he created us to live, away from the bondage and the pain that sin brings. We talk about this all the time. The key to sin working is it has to lie to you. It has to get you to believe stuff that's not true so that you'll think, oh, this will be really fun. This will satisfy. This will, this will make life better. And then you find out later you're trapped in it or stuck in it or dealing with the damage that comes from it. Listen, there's a war there is a war going on in your soul every day between your sin nature, the devil, the enemy, and the spirit of God that's in you. Do you know that? Do you recognize that? It's a full-blown battle. It is a war over your soul. It's a turf war for your soul. And I think there are the times that we give in, believe lies, do things we shouldn't, and we end up living with guilt, 
guilt over all the things we wish we had done that we didn't do, or things we should have done that we didn't do. But listen, listen, I think guilt is a sign that the Spirit of God is at work inside of you. If he wasn't, I don't think you'd care. So should we have Celebrate Guilt Day? (laughs) But it's true. If you you sit here and you're listening going, I feel guilty, that means God's at work. Otherwise, you wouldn't give a rip. You wouldn't care. So I think it's a gift meant to help us to see that God is at work in us. So don't quench that. Don't stay there, and we'll talk about how to get out of the guilt, but don't quench him when you feel the guilt or the conviction, which is the better word, what guilt should lead towards. Because listen, by the power of the resurrected Jesus, you should be able to confess your sin anytime, anywhere. And by the power of the Spirit, you can cultivate conviction over that sin and then tap into his power to repent of the sin and be set free from the sin. That's what he does for us. The problem is sometimes it begins with guilt, and then we get trapped in that, and we don't know how to get out. We need help to turn our guilt into realizing, yes, it's sin, so that we can go down the road of repentance. So Reuben seems to get this, and Reuben gets something else here in verse 22, which is absolutely remarkable, because I don't know how he would know this unless God gave it to him or put this in his head. But look what he says. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? So we circled the word sin. But you did not listen. Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Circle the word reckoning. So we've got guilt, sin, and reckoning. He knows that his sin must be reckoned with. Now I'm going to talk about reckoning for a little bit. Not a word that we use very often. I'm trying to articulate reckon in a sentence and can't figure it out. So I'm going to probably use it grammatically very incorrect. It's okay. Can you let that go? But follow with me what's happening here in the story. The, the idea of reckoning is it's time to pay for what they did to Joseph. The word actually means this idea of they're being sought out. In other words, it's coming to light what they did. The consequences are about to be dished out. The penalty is going to be paid. Justice is to be served. They're being held accountable for what they did, even though it was 22 years ago. And the brothers know, somehow Reuben knows, they know that their sin needs to be reckoned with. God didn't tell them that directly anywhere. They don't have the law, but he's put it in them, this understanding that somehow the sin's got to be reckoned with. It's got to be paid for. Someone needs to pay for it. And what's crazy is they know that God is the one who's seeking them for it. If you flip over to verse 28, what they say, this brother, we don't know who he is. He's unnamed. In verse 28, the money is in his sack. He finds it in the mouth of his sack. And then it says, and at this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that Joseph has done to us? But they don't know it's Joseph. They could have said, what, is, what did this dude do to us? This is the first time the brothers actually acknowledge God. First time. They actually acknowledge God. They realize God is now after us for what we did to our brother. They actually realize that the reckoning that takes place is not going to be between them and Joseph, if he's even alive. It's going to be between them and God. 
That's where the reckoning has to take place, between them and God. God is going to get a reckoning for what is happening, and they tremble over it. There's a trembling. There's a fear. They have a fear of God, but their fear of God is very different than Joseph's, right? Their fear of God is God is going to get us. We are doomed. There's going to be a reckoning for his blood. Their assumption is that he is dead. Now, if this isn't foreshadowing of the gospel, I mean, if this doesn't point to the gospel, I don't know what does, right? I think God is giving them the gift of, at least us this morning, of gospel reckoning. There seems to be something called gospel reckoning going on here. It's pointing forward. It's interesting. I can't find the word guilt or guilty in the New Testament, except when it talks about Jesus having no guilt. And it's almost like the New Testament. God wants in the New Testament to have our focus to be on that Jesus had no guilt so he could take all of your guilt. That in his death, he could bear the punishment for your sin. He could have a reckoning day. A day where he reckons your sin to be made right because he is perfect in every way. And it seems like Reuben even gets the idea that there can be a substitute for things that need to be reckoned. Do you catch what he says in verse 37? This is Reuben again. He's saying, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my two sons, which is just horrible. What a jerk. But he gets the idea of substitution somehow. Like, if I don't do this, then somebody else can pay for it. And I feel like this is another piece of this puzzle. They know that they've got to pay. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus paid the penalty for you. So listen, guilty sinners, Jesus did it. He did it. The reckoning for your sin is complete. It's complete. It's done. Your sin is as far as the east is from the west. Your guilt is at the bottom of the ocean. There is no condemnation. There is no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're free. You're free. So when you feel guilt over your sin, remember, begin the repentance process or continue the repentance process by celebrating your reckoning day. You have a reckoning day in your past. Well, your sin was reckoned for through Jesus. But listen, there's going to be another reckoning day. There's one in the past, but there's also one coming. And the one coming is for people who aren't surrendered to Jesus. And Jesus won't reckon for their sin then. They will pay for it. Anyone who doesn't celebrate the reckoning day of Jesus' death and resurrection will one day have to pay for it themselves. And they will pay the penalty. They'll pay it. So I don't know this morning if you have ever surrendered to Christ, said, I need your forgiveness, I need you to be my Lord and my master and my king. Listen, know that if you haven't, that the guilt you carry, you're going to carry all the way to the judgment where you'll stand before God and you will be held accountable for your sin. Well, there's one more thing draw your attention to, and I'm done. And that is Joseph's response to eavesdropping 
on the brother's conversation. God gives them, I think, the gift, Joseph, of a broken heart when others sin. Do you see how Joseph responds? Look what Joseph does in verse 24. The brothers say they're guilty. They connect it to sin. They know there needs to be a reckoning. And Joseph's response in verse 24 is, you're darn right there's going to be a reckoning. Now, how does Joseph respond? What does he do? He weeps. He weeps. He sees them wrestling with their guilt, burdened by their sin, knowing that there's going to be a reckoning, knowing he could bring that reckoning with the snap of a finger. And instead, what does he do? He weeps. I'm sorry, that's just the work of God. Now, I read these stories and I go, this is before Jesus dies. This is before the Spirit gets poured out. And this dude is responding to the work of God in a remarkable way. He's weeping. How, how do you respond? You're in your group of three. You're in your community group and someone confesses sin. I think sometimes it can be easy to be self-righteous maybe or interact a little, but to, to weep. I mean, this is, this is not community they're experiencing, finally, for the first time as a family, where Joseph's weeping over his brother's sin. He's weeping over the sin they committed against him. I mean, that, that is the work of God in his life. And may we do the same. May we be a people that weep over each other's sin, who weep when we see each other sinning, when we see each other confessing sin. May we weep together. May we be a church that does that. No self-righteousness, weeping going on. I, I, I love this story as I read it this week because it just gives me such confidence that God is at work. God is at work in hearts. And I, I believe God is at work in every person in this room. He is at work in your heart. And the point of this is to make you aware of how God's at work and to accelerate the process a little bit. Because I want that. I want that. I want God to work more in my heart. I want God to work more in my soul, in my sin, in my laziness, in my passivity, and the list goes on. I want him to work. And I read this and go, look at how God works. If God could work in Joseph pre-cross, pre-pouring out of Holy Spirit, then come on, right? Bring it on, Holy Spirit. Bring it on. Awaken me. Alert me to what you're doing. Help me to see what you're doing. I don't want to miss what you're doing. I want to cooperate with what you're doing. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to just take time now to just rest, read, have your Bible open, sing a little, pray a little, kneel, go to the back of the room, whatever you need to do, and just ask God, what do you, what do you want to do in my life? What are the things you want to do in me? Inside of my heart? What are the things you want to do outside? And let him just speak to you. Just spend some time just resting in him and listening to him. And I pray that he's going to bring healing to some of you, maybe forgiveness that you haven't felt before. I'm just praying the Spirit will just move in your heart in a way that allows you to do what I said at the very beginning of this sermon to have just an authentic encounter with the risen Christ because that's what we need more than anything. Anything is we need him. So I'm going to pray, and then I want you to feel the freedom to do whatever you want. We may sing a little bit first, or not. let's not first. Just 
Do you guys get comfortable? Just pray if you receive this this morning as a gift. Time is a gift. <laughs> so I'm going to lock the doors. You can't leave. <laughs> and just, re- just rest. Whatever you've got to do, just get on your face before God and just let God minister to you. Let the Spirit minister to you this morning in whatever he wants to do. And if, and if God moves in your heart with a prophetic word of some kind, please let me know. I'd love to weave those in and out of this time we're going to have together. Um, so let me pray. Alex, if you and Ruth, whatever you guys, you guys have stuff planned, and I'm glad you do. And I want to pray for us and ask the Spirit to, to come and do what he wants to do. Father, I believe what Hebrews tells us, that you exist and you reward those who seek you. And so I, I pray that there's just a little tiny window of time set aside right now to seek you. I pray that you would reward us for that. God, I pray that you would reward some people in this room physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing, mental healing. God, I pray you reward some in, some in here with just a fresh awareness of how much you love them and your forgiveness. I, I pray you reward some in this room this morning by opening their heart to Jesus for the first time, for saving faith. God, I'm sure there's people in this room that, are, that have so much to grieve over, so many things have happened that are sad and hard. I pray you give the gift of grieving this morning. And with that, gifts of, of healing in their mind and in their hearts. Spirit, I pray that you would lead right now and show us specifically what you want us to pray for and talk to you about. And I pray that we would be open and honest with you and that we would also be good listeners. That you'd speak to us, Holy Spirit. That you'd minister to each one of us in the way that you want to. God, we even just begin this morning recognizing that we are guilty sinners and it's because of the blood of Christ and only because of the blood of Jesus that we are now children of God. We are saints. And so any sin we confess to you during this time, we thank you that it's already been forgiven. It's already been covered by your blood. And I pray that any sin you bring to mind that you want us to confess to you again, that it would just break its power even more that there'd be freedom in this room. So come, Spirit, do do everything you want to do and help us to embrace and receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name.